Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up features books from 61 literary publishers. All Lit Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. What's more, for a limited time, listeners of Between the Covers get 10% off all books on All Lit Up with promo code Between the Covers. Check out All Lit Up at www.alllitup.ca. That's A L L L I T U P dot C A. Today's episode is also brought to you by Kim Fu's Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, a collection of 12 stories in which the strange is made familiar and the familiar strange, says Lucy Tan. Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century is for the adventurous reader, someone willing to walk into a story primed for cultural critique and suddenly come across a plot for murder, or to consider the dangers of sea monsters alongside those posed by 21st century ennui. Each story is spectacularly smart, hybrid in genre, and bold with intention. The monsters here are not only fantastical figures brought to life in hyper-reality, but also the strangest parts of the human heart. This book is as moving as it is monumental. Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century is out now from Tin House. It wasn't planned, though it may seem that way, that Fernando Pessoa came up in the last conversation with Rabi Alamedin, and then Rabi read from one of his favorite Pessoa poems for the Bonus Audio Archive. And now today's guest, James Hanahan, is on the show to talk about his completely uncategorizable book of possible fictions, or maybe non-fictions, or poetry, and of images and visual art, often of mysterious origin, but also a book that is very specifically in dialogue, poem by poem, with Fernando Pessoa. I can't take credit for the only two times Pessoa has come up on the show being back-to-back like this, but this conversation does, among many other things, talk about just this sort of uncanniness that can and does happen in life. Before we start, here on this first day of February, in the waning hours of Groundhog Day's Eve, consider, before being trapped in a never-ending time loop, switching your identity, like Pessoa himself might, in one decisive swoop from a listener of Between the Covers to a listener-supporter of Between the Covers. There are more things than ever to entice you to do just that at patreon.com slash between the covers. But also, there are the simple joys of joining the community, shaping the show, of receiving the resource-rich emails with each episode, and of supporting the things you love and have found valuable. And yet, if you are like me, you might still want something great in addition to that. 
if you head over to patreon.com slash between the covers, you can check out all the various things that past guests have gifted toward the future of the show that could now be gifted to you. And now for the uncategorizable and uncanny conversation with writer and visual artist, James Hanahem. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, by his own description, is writer, professor, critic, performer, and visual artist, weirdo, James Hanahan. Hanahan received a BA in art from Yale University, an MFA in fiction and screenwriting from the Missioner Center for Writers at the University of Texas, Austin. And he's a professor in the writing program of the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. Beginning in the 90s, he worked in the art department at The Village Voice, as well as ultimately writing for them. He was a staff writer at Salon, and his criticism, essays, and profiles have also appeared everywhere from Spin Magazine to BuzzFeed to the New York Times Magazine. He also co-founded the New York-based performance group Elevator Repair Service. During the decade Hanahan worked with them, the company often utilized found texts and improvised with anything that wasn't literature, where words or movements or sounds went through a process of several translations, whether from one language to the next or one medium to another. Hanaham is also a visual artist. His often satirical text-based artworks have been exhibited everywhere from the James Cohan Gallery to the Center for Emerging Visual Artists. His faux historical exhibition of bygone mid-20th century signage from America's racist, sexist, and homophobic present, Jim Crow, Hell No, was at Open Source Gallery in 2021. And his work, Everything is Normal, Everything is Normal, Everything is Fine, Everything is Fine, was judged best in show at a national juried exhibition of artist books and text-based visual works at Biblio Spectaculum at Main Street Arts. James Hanahan, however, is best known as a novelist. His debut, God Says No, was honored by the American Library Association's Stonewall Book Awards and was a Lambda Literary Award finalist. And his second novel, Delicious Foods, was winner of the Penn Faulkner Award, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, named by Publishers Weekly as one of the top 10 books of 2015, and selected as one of the notable books of the year by the New York Times and the Washington Post. A citation from the Penn Faulkner judges called 
delicious foods at once, a sweeping American tale of race and exploitation, a darkly comedic thriller, and an intimate portrayal of a troubled mother and her damaged son. And that Hanahan was unafraid of the complex and the horrible, and yet his novel shines in its intimate details. James Hanahan joins us today to discuss his most uncategorizable book to date, one that most captures the breadth of his artistic interests, as well as his self-described weirdness. His book of prose, or perhaps poetry, and visual art, Pilot Imposter, from Soft Skull Press. Bill Kelly for Booklist describes Pilot Imposter in this way. Whether read as prose poems or short, aphoristic thought experiments, the pieces are infused with Hanahem's distinctive dark humor, biting social commentary and ever-present exuberance, calling to mind a blend of Jorge Luis Borges, Donald Barthelme, David Markson, and Steve Martin. The result is daringly original and uninhibitedly inventive, born aloft by a subversive verve. Kirkus, in its star review, says, Hanahem's book, not quite a novel, not quite a short story collection, not quite like anything else, is a clever series of reflections on art, doubt, race, and imposter syndrome. Written as a response to the poetry of Portuguese writer Fernando Pessoa, the book mixes artwork with brief pieces that blur the line between prose and poetry. Hanahem continues to be one of the country's smartest and most surprising writers of fiction, or whatever this book actually is unclassifiable, dizzying, and gorgeous. Finally, Amitava Kumar says, in his new book, Pilot Imposter, Hanahem performs a different kind of magic. Brief spectral texts and photographs respond to Fernando Pessoa's poetry, while fragments from the news return us to what is uncanny in our present moment. We are in Pessoa land, but also in Trumplandia, Pilot Imposter is a complex reflection on Pessoa's heterogeneity of identity and Trump's embodiment of bluster and chicanery. It's impossible not to hear Trump's voice in lines like this. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, before this afternoon, I had no experience whatsoever flying a plane. I had hardly ever even ridden in one, but I have to say, flying is awesome and I am great at flying planes. Reading Pilot Imposter is the experience of encountering something new and charged and original in a pleasurable way. Welcome to Between the Covers, James Hanahem. Oh, thank you. Um, is, oh, I was hoping you would just keep going on. For <laughs> it's probably I was, so I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> who is this guy? Yeah, who is this guy? Well, that's the question. Who is this guy? I mean, since we're talking about, we're going to be talking about Pessoa, and I think that is one of the animating questions. But before we we go to who is this guy, who is James Hanahem, who is who is Pessoa, even though Pilot Imposter is full of airline cl- crashes, including multiple times those of 9-11, 9-11 isn't the main date that hovers over the collection. Rather, 11-9 is, 11-9-16 when, when Trump was elected. So you, you've talked many times about how you were writing under the mood of that moment just after he won. So l- let's start here. Connect us to, or connect Trump, air disasters, Portugal, 
Africa and Pessoa <laughs> and how they became the ingredients of, of Pilot Imposter? Uh, the, the moment that uh, exemplifies how that all came together was that um, I was um, returning from Cape Verde on the way to uh, Lisbon in uh, December of uh, 2016, which is a trip I had planned before, you know, any of what happened happened um, in the election um, or, it, you know, w before the election itself happened, I should say, because plenty happened beforehand. So I had, I had finished reading this other book by a Cape Verdean author. And then I turned in while I was on the plane, I started to read uh, Fernando Pessoa. And I'd already been sort of obsessed with uh, this television show called Air Disasters that apparently very few other people have paid attention to. But it's, a, it's basically a procedural that's about, um, each, each episode is about a different plane crash. And um, what fascinated me about it was not just the sort of sensational, um, un, difficult material to have to wrangle, um, it was, it was also that it was done in a way that it was not, it, was, it wasn't particularly lurid. It was much more informational than lurid. And, you know, they, they have really great CGI recreations of, uh, you know, each of the crashes. And that is, I guess, one of those things that stops people from channel surfing, right? It's like, you know, if you see, if they play it as many times as they possibly can. I mean, I feel like that's sort of where television is going ultimately, right? Like nonstop car crashes and plane crashes and, you know, viral videos of people being belligerent in, in supermarkets and stuff. So uh, that, was, that was also on my mind. The, the 2016 election was on my mind. Um, and the first line of the, the book that I was reading, the anthology of um, Pessoa's work, which uh, Pessoa and Company, which is the really great translations by um, Richard Zenith. Um, the first line of the first poem is, I've never kept sheep, but it's as if I did. Which, I mean, there are a number of ways to look at that line, but at, to read that line at that moment on the route that I was taking, which was, you know, an old, if it had been done by ship, it couldn't have been more exemplary of like, you know, the slave trade. It, it struck me as somebody sort of pretending to be something they weren't. Um, and that's a little bit like the heteronym who, who supposedly wrote this line is a guy named Alberto Cairo. It's, I mean, it's sort of a complicated thing. And I wonder how tongue in cheek it was for Pessoa. But he's a sort of anti-poetic poet, poet who, who believes more or less or like writes about in his work how things really are as they seem on the surface. And it, it, he does so in this kind of mystical sounding way that would, to me is a little bit like Chance the Gardener from, uh, from uh, uh, being there. And, and he is considered, I mean, one, I mean, he's one of the more important heteronyms of, of Pessoa's he's considered the master poet by a lot of other um, of the heteronyms, apparently. But I, I thought that that line was kind of exemplary of the times, right? Because here we had somebody with no experience in public service becoming like the most powerful person in the Western world. And, and in at least some measure elected so that he could tear everything down 
and be like almost literally the bull in the china shop that you know his constituents really wanted like somebody who you know who couldn't keep his mouth shut and couldn't stop you know being um aggressive and nasty and you know all of the all of those things that you know are so reprehensible and and redolent of you know dictatorships um and various dictators uh and some of the other things that that uh alberto Cairo says also reminded me of things that authoritarians would would love to say you know like everything is as it seems like there's nothing behind the, you know, there's nothing behind the curtain. Don't panic. Or not even don't panic, but like, you know, there's nothing to panic about. Right. Right. We should mention, I guess, for people who don't know Pessoa, what a, what heteronyms are versus a pseudonym. Well, for him, they were alter egos, but for him, um, they were more intense than alter egos, I guess. Like they were... The, the, they had biographies that were much more int- intricate somehow or I mean today I, I I feel like it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have the same resonance because so many people are avatars half of their lives now right so the his argument that the heteronym was was more you know more intense than an alter ego sounds a little flat now just because it's such a, a you know, everybody does it now. Right. Um, and, uh, and he was doing it just on paper. He wasn't like also creating, you know, various images of himself to be disseminated around the world the way that other, like, you know, normal people are doing now. But what's, we- but what's maybe unusual about it is it with his seven, 70 plus heteronyms, they interacted with each other. They like wrote the preface for each other's collected works. They translated each other. Um, they right, wrote they edited po- each other. They wrote political articles, published published stuff um, under the name of a specific heteronym. It was like a little world. It was a community of, of Portuguese poets that uh, that Pessoa had kind of dreamed would exist, and I guess he decided to. You know, if he didn't see it in the world, he decided to put it, you know, in the world in the way that he could. Um, although he kind of didn't put it that much in the world during, during his lifetime. Um, most of his output remained like just a sheath, like a, a, a sort of, uh, what am I, the trunk? Just as like, yeah. a, I haven't, I've actually never seen like an image of the trunk, but like there's some giant trunk just like full of little scraps of paper that he, you know, wrote on. I went into a, you know, not knowing, like you, not knowing a ton about Pessoa before the the project, I, I did a lot of exploring and like, apparently like it's like 25,000 manuscripts and that even on a one piece of paper, he might write, because he wrote horoscopes, he wrote political stuff, he wrote linguistic theory, um, uh, and poems. They might all be on the same page. They might all be, the different heteronyms might all be on the same page. He might have like seven different alternate phrases above and below a line with nothing crossed out. And he also was getting drunk every day. So it became more and more illegible. So it's really like, there's no like standard thing, but he did publish a lot of non-poetry in his life. Like he, he, he didn't publish much poetry, but apparently he published a lot of other things. Um, 
but but one of the things that I really loved about what one of the choices you made in Pilot Imposter is you set up a daily practice where you would read a Pessoa poem from Pessoa and Company, his selected poems, and then respond to it with your own work, working your way through his book one by one as you wrote. And I think what's so gratifying for me is that no matter how different the tone or genre or format or mood of your book is one page or to the next, it's still tethered in some loose way to Pessoa and company as it unfolds so that there is the opportunity, even though it completely stands alone, you can read pilot imposter by itself, but you have these little um, notes in small print on each page where if you want, and it was really fun to do, you can work your way through a piece of yours and a piece of Pessoa's one by one together so that you're actually in tandem reading both books. The uh, connection is actually tighter than that. I tried to keep it in order. So you could read both books at the same time, going back and forth. Um, I think it's almost completely airtight. I tried to make it as airtight as I could. I skipped things and I removed things, but the rule was I had to, uh, if I was going to skip something, I had to replace it with an image. And then through the various drafts, I, I started using different um, categories of image to replace things. Well, let me ask you a probably impossible question. So, so Pessoa's heteronym that you mentioned, Alberto Cairo, he continues to bother you as you read. Beyond the line, I've never kept sheep, but it's as if I did. You, you write in an essay that many ideas in his poems challenged your basic values. And you list some of them. For instance, thinking is a discomfort or to think is to not understand or to love is eternal innocence and the only innocence is not to think. And then you say, quote, how could any married person read those last two lines without laughing derisively? I got angry, but at whom? And this is the question I wanted to stay with, the but at whom? Because other heteronyms of Pessoa's have worldviews that are in opposition to Kairu's worldview. For instance, while he's an uneducated shepherd, Ricardo Reis is a doctor, a classicist, and a monarchist who writes odes in the style of Horace, and he doesn't glorify unmediated sensation. In fact, the way Pessoa describes him is he's led by thoughts and by words, not by music and feeling. So to return to your, I got angry, but at whom, when you're wrestling with Kairu's philosophy, do you feel like you're also wrestling with Pessoa, the person or did this question vex you or did it even really matter at all? I mean, I think initially it mattered somewhat, right? But as I started to get more familiar with the different heteronyms, it just seemed to me, I mean, now it kind of seems to me more ironic than it did at the beginning, right? Because I think, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a jab at, at the idea of poetry, that poetry is supposed to do these things. And most poems are attempting to like, you know, show you what's beneath the surface of life. Um, whereas, you know, Cairo is trying to tell you that the surface of life is all that there is. Um, and, and that is something that, that, I mean, it's funny actually at this point, but at the time I was sort of worked up and to encounter it at that moment of being sort of worked up, um, 
made me want to engage with that idea because I mean, I feel like that idea or those ideas um, are, are like some people actually think those things, right? Like there are some people for whom, you know, surfaces are all that is and are, and are, you know, devoted to the idea that um, there isn't a subtext to anything anyone says. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And that's like the opposite of how I've lived my entire life. Well, did you feel like when you were moving from one Pessoa heteronym to the next, let's say from the uneducated shepherd to the monarchist classicist and writing your work that there was, you, you noticed a, a shift in yourself, a different part of self coming forward to, to wrestle or not necessarily? I feel like I wasn't necessarily asking myself that question. I mean, one of the things that I was really interested in and that, you know, if, if someone has heard your introduction of me and then the description of all of these different characters that, that Pessoa created, like, I mean, that was obviously the thing that interested me most about his uh, work was that he was adopting all of these persona personae. Do people actually say personae? I guess they do. (laughs) They do now. Um, it was, he was adopting all of these different, and, and that was something to me that like, I sort of identified with um, as somebody who's like bounced around and done a lot of different types of things and types of art and types of writing. I, I guess I sort of thought at the same time that he was all of these people, he was also Fernando Pessoa, but he also does a good job of trying to convince you that he doesn't exist mm-hmm. yeah. any, any more than, you know, the heteronyms that he created, which I guess at this point is probably true. Right. Yeah. Because he exists only, you know, as, as the writings he left behind. Could, could we hear your piece air disaster, which I think while it begins sounding like narrative reportage, I think is really ultimately about what we're talking about. Air disaster. A plane crashed under mysterious circumstances in a country with a dense and sparsely populated rainforest. None of the passengers or crew survived. Because of the nature of the accident, many parts of the plane had scattered over a wide area, which made this this difficult investigation almost impossible. People from nearby villages walked away with parts of the plane they thought might be useful as tools or to trade. The small country did not have a good transportation safety board. They needed to send the many charred parts of the fuselage to the United States for analysis. After getting word to the local populace that they would pay a reward for the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, providing pictures of both, officials recovered them. The boxes had sustained heavy fire damage. No one knew how much information they might yield, if any. The investigators carefully packed the black boxes, which were orange, into crates and put them on an airplane to Washington, D.C. But the airplane carrying the black boxes disappeared from radar while over the ocean en route to the United States. There followed an extremely time-consuming and costly search and rescue effort for the black boxes on board the second plane, as well as for those from the earlier crash. The search continued for months and cost many millions of dollars. The governments conducting the search ran out of money twice and nearly gave up, but the families of those presumed dead insisted that the search continue and put pressure on the various governments involved. For a while, the press remained fixated on such an unusual story, 
but gradually, with so few developments, they lost interest. A year and a half into the search, investigators found the wreckage. The plane had sunk so far down that only a robotic submersible could explore the crash site. Alternatives existed, but their costs became prohibitively high. Finally, after five years, the technology and budget came within reach, and the investigators recovered both flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders. Everyone on the reconnaissance boat whooped with joy. That night, on the way back to shore, the boat caught fire and sank, killing all crew members. No one could ever properly investigate any of the mishaps. They all remain completely unexplained at the bottom of the ocean. That's what it's like to have to deal with you. We've been listening to James Hanahan read from Pilot Imposter. I love this doom search for the black box. The, the box, obviously, that purportedly contains the truth, the idea that the plane crashing in the rainforest, the second plane rescuing the black box, disappearing over the ocean, finally being recovered by divers um, whose boat catches on fire um, as the sort of metaphor for how to engage with Pessoa through his heteronyms. Um, and then we have, if, we, if we're reading that piece on our own, we have the indication of Pessoa's poem, Before I Had You, where we could go for possible clues of what you might have responded to. And it has lines yeah, like, what was I responding to? <laughs> I know. I mean, it has lines that aren't obviously related, but that are, that I think are, are, are great. Like before I had you, I loved nature as a calm monk loves Christ. Now I love nature as a calm monk loves the Virgin Mary. But we also have another way to relate to this text of yours, uh, which is often the case. Uh, there's an accompanying photo, which is, which, um, is of a guy, later known notoriously as the tourist guy, standing on the observation deck of the World Trade Center getting his photo taken while the first plane behind him, unbeknownst to him, is just about to hit. But though you don't tell us this, it turns out that this photo is a, is a hoax that went viral. And even though it was easily debunked by the timestamp, by the way the light lands on the plane so differently than the lighting in the rest of the photo, or that the observation deck wasn't even open at the time that 9-11 happened, none of these verifiable truths stopped the popularity of the photo and its quote-unquote mystery. And someone eventually in Brazil even claims to be the guy in the photo and becomes a huge celebrity there, even though he wasn't the guy. So this, of course, feels very, well, it feels very Pessoian and very Trumpian at the same time. How does one engage with another when that other has a parallel universe of fake news sources and we have no shared upon, agreed upon reality? And in light of this, it makes me think of your piece, How to See Without Thinking, which of course is- I'm not going to read that one. No, which is inspired by Kairu's aspiration to see without thinking and is really just a page of, of gibberish. Um, so talk to us more about seeing without thinking or, or seeing while only thinking using a reservoir of fake facts to do your thinking or, and of using fake facts yourself in, in pilot imposter. How to see without thinking is basically a joke, right? I mean, I wanted some of the pieces in this book to seem a little bit like throwaways or even or just to, just to give people the sense that this was, you know, an ongoing project that like some things 
I was going to devote certain kinds of attention to and other things when I was not. And this is one that's a little bit just like a visual um, pun almost. Um, and it's also a little bit of a joke about something I tell my students when I'm, I'm teaching, which is that intention can be made clear in a variety of ways, right? And, and one of them is to say like, you know, you know put, put a title on something that tells you how to look at it. And that is, it, that is what this piece does. It says like, here, look at this thing that's completely impossible to think about in, a, in the way that you know, a poem would. It's a little bit of a concrete poem without being a concrete poem. And I feel like the experience of looking at something unintelligible is not, I mean, it's fairly common, right? It's one of those things that we find ourselves doing, you know, we open a, a you know, a PDF or something and it's messed up and you get all this garbled stuff sometimes or like, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thing. So that was one reason uh, I did that. And, you know, there were just some days where I was like, well, maybe this is what I'm going to do. Um, and that was, that was what I did. And I, and I, you know, I, I wanted to preserve it in the manuscript mm. ultimately, rather than taking it out because it, you know, doesn't do a lot of the same other things. Um, but uh, what was the other part of that? Well, just using fake facts yourself. Like we have this viral hoax video, a still of the hoax video next to the, the piece Air Disaster, which you read just read for us. There's a couple of other images like that in the book too. Um, there's a guy who goes by Pilot Ganso, who's made a series of um, images of like himself holding a selfie stick out a window of the cockpit, which is totally impossible to do. And if you thought about it for a second, you'd be like, oh, this is clearly Photoshop or whatever. Um, but people lost their minds when they saw this. They were like, this guy needs to be fired. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he did a couple of other things like, like that. Um, but I mean, one of, I mean, I guess, I guess part of it is that it's just so easy to fool people with an image, like images are notoriously, I mean, I feel like that's art school 101, right? You know, images are, are treacherous. You know, you get the, the Magritte painting or whatever, like they, you know, they're, they're very, it's very easy to fool people both visually and conceptually um, with, with a constructed uh, uh, image. And I guess, um, there's something about that that I think is funny, obviously, right? It's like, and I actually, I think in the, in the context of the book, it's less dangerous than in the context of like, it's disseminating it on the internet because like, I don't know, there's a, there's a far more limited audience, I think, for a, a book like this than there is like the potential for like total randos who don't understand what's going on to seize on it and, you know, think about it in a way that it, that's going to be damaging. Yeah. I don't see that as a huge risk in this book, especially because we don't, you have to sort of go away outside the book to even discover what some of these images are. And then you learn that they are indeed hoaxes, not, not real things. Yeah. I, I, like, I like hoaxes. Okay. I mean, that's part of what it is. I, I think, 
there's there's something about the hoax and the prank that is a little bit what artists are up to a lot of the time. Things that I gravitate toward anyway in terms of art are usually kind of in, an intervention into like conventional thinking on some level that like sort of surprise you and and change the terms that you had already you know sort of accepted hopefully in a in a good way that expands your mind um rather than makes you you know shut you down or whatever but like i think hoaxes once you figure out that they are hoaxes are like that and they're also funny once i mean unless you are somebody who feels like just duped and you've done something really horrible in in connection with something you know hoaxy and you've you know fooled yourself in some way you might you might feel bad about having been duped by a hoax well i want to ask you about not about i mean keeping in mind this this notion of seeing without thinking i wanted to ask you about a certain type of thinking that keeps people from seeing um in your last book delicious foods which dealt with modern slavery there are a lot of ways we refuse to think about what is before our eyes, I think, regarding contemporary slavery. Um, some of the most common items in our lives, I think, like the smartphone maybe being the most obvious one, you know, whether it be people leaping from the Chinese factories or threatening in mass to leap from the roofs of Chinese factories building the phones or the child slaves that are mining the components of the phones um, or what you call the temporal dread around contemporary slavery, that slavery hasn't actually ended um, even in the American South to the same demographic. But there's also a certain kind of smokescreen thinking that is used to prevent seeing things um, like this. Um, not only the fake stories that are used to lure people into wage slavery, but I'm also thinking of of Sextus, the owner of Delicious Foods, um, who sets his company up as a shell company, which gives him a plausible deniability for the whole thing. He can say, and, also, and, and in doing so, preserve a sense of his own goodness or innocence. I have no idea where the, what these subcontractors are up to and keep himself from seeing himself as being involved in sort of the consequences of whatever those subcontractors are up to. And so I'm thinking of the, of the visual in the book um, because when we think about your own art, a lot of it has to do with text um, previously, like signage, signification. And there are things in the book that we can, that are, I think, very legible when you've taken other people's images of planes and plane crashes. We can, if we want, go to the back and look at the image credits and follow what, what those things are. But much of your own art in the book I think in contrast to your, uh, a lot of your previous art is often abstract, often squares and often different surfaces like um, ceramic tiles. So there's no obvious content, but I'm wondering if these surfaces are hiding something underneath. If, if I'm going too far to think that these squares, the absent content are, somehow connected, however, tenuously to plausible deniability. But if not, talk to us about, talk to us about this part of the book, which um, 
I don't want to say it's superficial in terms of meaning, but it feels like it's dealing, it's very much dealing on the surface. It's actually so much fun to hear you do this that I don't want to tell you any differently. I'm like, oh, that's so nice that he thinks that. <laughs> it's <laughs> a little, it's like a, probably a little simpler than that, but it's nice that, you know, the, the, that it's not just resonating in this one way. Like, I think that's, you know, ideally what, I mean, um, unless, you know, people are interpreting your work in some way that's really horrible that you don't want. Like, I think that's the ideal way for, for someone to approach, you know, anything. Um, but really what it was, there were a couple of things that are a little bit more sort of mundane. Um, originally, I had planned to design the book myself. And since I'm old, I was using um, Quark Express. Um, and, try to, and one of my, the things I kind of liked to do with that was to like make legible this sort of um, mechanism of the of the program itself. And, and I'd taken a lot of photographs in Lisbon when, once we got there. And I was noticing that there were all of these very different and very vibrant surfaces and a lot of squares. You know, the, they paved the streets with these little squares that they put in all sorts of um, cool um, formulations and their um, square um, old tiles lining you know the walls in some places in front of um apartment buildings and such and um where else are there squares um and then you know lisbon is an extremely old city um it's about 3200 years old at this point and and it's been ruled by the romans and then the moors and then you know the portuguese and and so it's like there are lots of different layers of just in the city itself. And one of the things I noted as I was walking around was just how, um, just how much history there is just under the surface of a lot of things. Um, I, I was walking, we were staying in Alfama um, and we were walking around and there was, a, there was a, a sign that just said to the Roman theater. And I was like, oh, it must be sort of a Roman style theater. But no, they had excavated an entire like theater from Roman times. Um, and there was a church nearby there that had done a dig that went like something like 60 feet down to the Roman sewer beneath everything. So I, I guess that is, uh, and then, oh, the other thing that I realized a little bit later is that Pessoa himself is kind of a square. <laughs> <laughs> and also everywhere. I don't know if that, oh yeah, if you're looking for him, you'll, you'll see him. But he's so unassuming, like this, his image is just, you know, just looks like a, like a clerk somewhere. Well, part of this made me, uh, maybe another way that the squares and the, and the, the surfaces of Lisbon made me think of was of your essay, Why I Became a Southern Writer, where you explore why you set both of your, your novels in the South, despite not growing up in the South, and how you found comfort being below the Mason-Dixon line. In that essay, you say, while I looked askance at the widely available mammy cookie jars in gift stores, I felt that at least they were tangible signs of a nationwide bigotry that Northerners tended to sublimate or explain away. In the South, I could point to actual artifacts and say, look, racism. 
white folks in the South had no filters. And I was wondering when thinking about all the surfaces of Lisbon that you've put in the book, um, I, I was wondering what your experience of Lisbon was like in this regard. Um, I mean, did, did I have, were there like racist microaggressions against me or something? Yeah, in, I, I mean, or, or uh, yeah, or how you felt as a black tourist in, in Lisbon. You know, as a black tourist in, in any place that's not America, I often feel much safer and much less uh, scrutinized. I, I can't recall anything. I mean, first of all, it was December in Lisbon and like no one was there. So my husband and I were just like driving to the coast every day and finding these sort of abandoned, uh, not abandoned, but like empty beach towns that you could tell were like much more, you know, popular during the summer. But it was like, it wasn't like super cold. It was maybe like in the 40, 50 range. Um, so like we just took a lot of like romantic walks on the beach and stuff and we didn't really interact with that many people so I think that may be one one way in which I didn't feel as if you know the weight of oppression was falling on me or I mean in some European countries you actually feel like people um, if you're a black American specifically they are sort of overly demonstrative about how much they like you, which is a different kind of racism, but I, I would say it's, you know, preferable on a certain level. <laughs> I, you know, I don't have any problem with people who actually want to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I've, I feel like over the years, I've heard people like write these short stories and stuff about like, you know, people who are fetishists or whatever. I'm like, you know, it's fine. It's the people who ostracize you based on race, you know, that I, that I have beef with. It's like, if people are going to actually connect, there's an opportunity there for like growth and, you know, and potentially, you know, knowledge and all of this other stuff that happens when people connect with one another. Right. But like the people who are like, no, categorically, no, we yeah. must not. I mean, oh God, hate, hate, hate. Um, but yeah, any, I feel like any time I leave the United States, almost, I can't actually think of a country I've been to where I felt any more sort of like, oh, they're following me around in the supermarket or like, you know, I'm, I'm under suspicion just because of who I am or just mm -hmm. not even who I am, but what I look like, which is much different than who I am, right? Like I know... Or, or that weird feeling of like, it's even weirder actually than this, the really twisted feeling of like, I have to troubleshoot um, in this space to make sure that somebody doesn't question my right to be where I am, even though I am a citizen of this country, born and raised in this you know area or wherever. Um, so like that feeling almost never happens in foreign countries. I mean, some, are, you know, better than others. Um, and I won't go through the list, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Lisbon, Lisbon was not giving me that kind of vibe at the time. I'm not saying that there's no racism. there. Of course not. Yeah. Um, I just didn't know if the Lisbon surfaces were, were a commentary on Lisbon in that. In that oh, regard. no, not in that way. Yeah. Could, could we hear another piece? I was hoping maybe we could hear false poets. Why that one? feel like it's speaking most perhaps speaking most directly to to Pessoa and personas 
or you know in Pessoa I think also in in some respect the the irony that his last name is person in English I didn't tell you the other story about getting off the plane which you probably read somewhere already about the travel agent yeah well no the the uh car rental agent like we got off the plane and the first person I met in Lisbon was a car rental agent whose last name was Pessoa. That's so I, great. I, Which I, is not a common name, right? No. Well, I I didn't know that at the time. I like I was I was reading the book and, blah, 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 and then I got to the desk and she had this nameplate that said Pessoa and I was like, oh, it must be like Smith or Jones or something. So I was like, whatever. But then I was like, I decided I could open a conversation about it. So I was like, is that a common name? And she's like, no. Um, <laughs> And so I was wondering if maybe she was related to him, but she didn't know if she was related to him, which seems odd to me. Like, how would you not know you were related to him? But, uh, but I had already sort of envisioned a, a book project by the time I, I got to the car rental agency. Um, and that just kind of put, put a period on it, if you will. It was like, oh, definitely, this is a sign. I guess Pessoa himself probably would have thought of it as a sign because he was like, astrologer guy right he was and he was also helping alistair crowley do hoaxes when he came oh, to visit right. right which i think is really bizarre and funny you have done so much homework all right um false poets who are these false poets perhaps it wasn't so on the other side of the 20th century but over here we have no true or false way to make art we take the worst least serious poet seriously if he tries hard enough. We honor him for even bothering. And by he, I mean she. If she produces anything at all, no judgments. And by she, I mean say. It's the lack of thought that counts. If someone makes art under false pretenses and then dies, Art historians will analyze their false pretenses as part of an artistic practice composed in part of false pretenses. No artist is a con artist, or all con artists are also artists, or all artists are con artists, or all things have become art, including non-art, including con art. Insincerity plus death equals seriousness. Anything plus death equals seriousness. Try it out. The beginning of scholarly inquiry, the bell letterization, the calcification of history, and if the source isn't around to counteract that impression, as we all will someday not be around to do any counteracting, then the falsity falls away, the false city destroyed by a gigantic truthquake, 9.0 on the Gerhard Richter scale. Even if the source hasn't died, the text can prove more powerful than its creator. People will see what they want in the words, whether or not the artist meant them. On the contrary, this is untrue, which is to say that it is correct. Just joking, but not. The wooden marionette gets up by himself to become real despite the carver's incompetence. The real marionette gets up from inside himself to become a non-boy. The fake puppet with the orange face lies to the world so many times that the fabric of reality catches fire. 
Smart prophets make so many predictions about the future that when small parts of their divination prove correct, everyone fully believes in their powers despite their pathetic batting average. Meanwhile, on the moon, a man pretending to be an astronaut draws a happy face in the gray dirt. Then he dies. He dies on the moon. They have to bury him on the moon. So they bury him, but the body keeps floating up out of the grave. First a hand, then an arm, then the whole shoulder and torso and body rise up. We should all be so lucky. We've been listening to James Hanahan read from Pilot Imposter. So part of why I wanted you to read this is because I, I want to tease out what rankles you from what doesn't. Because if we think of Pessoa's heteronyms and his quote-unquote insincerity, one where not only do his various heteronyms contradict each other, writing in three different languages, translating each other, but they also write things against the dictatorship, but for authoritarianism, where different Pessoas could both support the idea, in his own words, of an aristocracy that would reduce the proletariat as far as possible to the condition of slaves, or, for instance, in an unsent letter to Woodrow Wilson, blacks are not human beings sociologically speaking. The greatest crime against humanity was the abolition of slavery, but also a different Pessoa opposing the Italian invasion of Abyssinia saying, quote, the fate of all imperialist peoples by turning others into slaves is to turn themselves into slaves or all of us, all people in this world whose lives are oppressed what are we in this world if not Abyssinians? Or on a personal level, with his sole romance in his life with a woman named Ophelia, where even when he was writing his letters of affection, one of his heteronyms would also write her letters telling her to leave him alone. And, and it, when they analyzed Ophelia's accounts the, of the only time that he professed his love to her, out loud. It was by quoting Hamlet's lines to Ophelia in that play. So she wasn't sure how to engage with these borrowed lines that were addressed to another person who shared her name. So thinking of all of this, I think of an early announcement long ago about Pilot Imposter coming out where you said, quote, it explores the connections between pretending and privilege and the ways in which identity is like a plane crash. And you've said in other places that the implied privilege of Pessoa imagining himself as Kairu appalled you. But on the other hand, I don't get the sense that you are against pretending or heteronyms or that you are only for work that is earnest. For instance, and <laughs> he just gave me the funniest look. <laughs> um, for instance, in Guernica, you say about delicious foods, quote, there's this feeling that you have to write what you know, and you have to be sincere about it. And it's not that way at all. It's more fun sometimes to write against your own beliefs, or to write a character who is someone who wouldn't, who you wouldn't particularly like in real life, but try to render them compassionately and faithfully. And, and I think of how 
in that book, you write from the voice of, of crack cocaine or how in your debut novel, Gary lives a double life. And when he leaves the heteronormative family, he lives as a gay man under an alias. And elsewhere, you say, I'm always aware that language can never quite say exactly what it needs to. It's an imperfect delivery system for reality, essentially, and it conceals as much as it seems to reveal and can be used for all kinds of lying and half-truthing and obfuscation, though I think those qualities can be horrible and fatal in real life, in literature they're fun to mess around with. So if it's true that you aren't anti-pretending and yet are writing a book about the connections between pretending and privilege, um, can you unpack that a little bit for us? I can unpack it by creating a series of heteronyms that, <laughs> I mean, this is like, Pessoa is like a human rabbit hole. I mean, one could, one could go searching, you know, for, for the authentic in, in Pessoa. And I think he did a pretty good job of covering his tracks, right? I mean, even in his supposed real life, um, with the, with the example you give there, it sounds like he was trying his best not to exist, or at least not to let on that he existed um, independently of his, of his work, um, which is a kind of way of disappearing, right? Um, no, I'm not anti-pretending, obviously. Um, I just think that, you know, like a lot of things, it's a tool and it can be used for good or bad, right? I mean, that's a little bit what the book is about. Um, and it's hard to determine sometimes, you know, which is which, um, especially in a moment that is like, you know, where the, where the volume is turned up so high as it was, you know, in, in the 2016 to 2020 sort of range. Um, but go on, tell me more about my eyes. <laughs> so could could you speak to the privilege that you see um in regards to in your first early announcement of this book's future existence that you were exploring the privilege of pretending or at least the privilege of pretending in relationship to Pessoa I think that I was responding a little bit to Cairo at the time still and feeling that you know his the way that that he described the world was one that I could not afford. Like if I were somebody who felt that the surfaces were all that existed, I might be dead. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I feel like I was saying earlier. Like I feel like I I spend a lot of the time not necessarily listening to what people say, but how they say it and what they actually mean or what I what their motivations might be which is a little bit harder to hear um, when there's lots of noise. Um, so I think that's a little bit what, what I meant by that. I mean, one could look at the facts of Pessoa's life and say that he led a pretty privileged sort of life, even though he was, he was in some respects kind of miserable. He was never like impoverished the hardships he he faced were all you know emotional difficulties which is not to say they're you know that that's that can be yeah you know, I, I maybe i don't really want to say that that's 
you know, worse or that's better or worse than, than abject poverty. Um, because sometimes, you know, it, it can be so debilitating as to be, you know, equivalent or worse. It's, I mean, it's very, I think it's a, it's a, it's a difficult and futile maybe thing to try to quantify people's various pain and trauma, you know, or so to compare some, some kinds of pain against others. Um, if nothing else, you know, those kinds of things should really unite us. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, I, I'm sort of close to what I meant there. Yeah. So. Well, to, to speak to you saying that, you know, Pessoa's attempt to maybe not exist, even though paradoxically, like so much of his, his world being paradoxical, he, he did publish under his own name also. Um, there is this sense of anxiety. I th- I think that's throughout his different heteronyms around whether there is a, whether he has a coherent self. Or disquiet, maybe. A disquiet. Yeah. So like the last poem of Ricardo Hayes has the line, I don't know when I think or feel who it is that thinks or feels or my favorite of his heteronyms, the bisexual naval engineer who lives in Scotland, Alvaro de Campos, who says, to know where to be that I could be in all parts, to know where to lie down that I could stroll all streets. But what's mysterious is at the same time, Pessoa must have had some sense of self because the person who wrote the Book of Disquiet, he only calls him a semi-heteronym because he's too close to Pessoa's own self-conception to be considered a proper heteronym, which seems very bizarre. And all of these people also share roughly Pessoa's age and build. Um, right. There, there's maybe like one female heteronym, right? There's one out of like 70 and she's like a hunchback with tuberculosis. So, um, but what I, in light of all this, I was hoping maybe you could read us the epigraph by Westerhoff at the beginning of the book and, and say anything that comes to mind about it. I love this epigraph, by the way. I do too. When considering the self as the unifier of our experiential world, it makes sense to understand it along the lines of a pilot in a flight simulator. From a range of perceptual input, our brain creates the image of the world in which the self operates. We cannot step outside of our brain, so we have no way of finding out what the world beyond the intracranial simulation is like. To us, it does not even feel like a simulation. But the problems with the Cartesian theater suggest that there is no pilot, no self, for whose benefit the simulation is put on. Rather, the collection of our physical and mental constituents acts like a total flight simulator that not only simulates the information received in the cockpit, but simulates the pilot as well. The self as the unifier of our perceptual input is a simulation or illusion, yet there is no non-simulated or non-illusory someone experiencing the simulation or having the illusion. That's just crazy. <laughs> and amazing. I, know, I, I, I found that in the middle of writing this book and I was like, definitely this. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, in, it's like the perfect, it's hard. It seems so improbable that you didn't make it up. Because it's how it unites heteronyms and plane crashes. 
in this way. It's just kind of amazing. Planes and plane crashes, ultimately. Right. And identity. Yeah. And I mean, identity. I mean, the book started out being about one thing, and it totally sort of turned turned itself in a way that was, you know, I mean, at some point, usually in whatever I'm working on, I, I have, I ask myself, well, who are you to say that? You know, like I usually have some moment of like self-consciousness about whatever it is I'm working on. And I think in this case, it was sort of like, well, um, there was a way in which it turned, turned into a question about perception in the self. And, you know, it started to be a book about, um, it started out to be being a book about, you know, someone who is kind of an out of control political leader, but then became a little bit more about how we are all the out of control dictators of our own lives headed toward inevitable plane crashes, I guess. Yeah, no, but what's so fascinating. So this, if we take this idea that we're not just in a flight simulation, but ourselves within the flight simulation is are also simulated. Um, and then we think of like the end of false poets, which you read before of the buried body on the moon of the false astronaut that continues despite being buried to rise up. And you say, we should all be so lucky. Um, this body that keeps making itself visible. It makes, it makes me wonder if in the end, regardless of whether a self exists, whether the pilot itself is simulated or not, if in the end, it doesn't matter that we're because we're ultimately beholden to each other in the world to our bodies slash selves in interaction with each other either way. I guess I'm curious to know if Westerhoff's epigraph is there because it is something you believe or rather it is there because it so ingeniously brings together the elements of the book, which clearly that it's there for that reason, but is it only there for that reason? Because one fun thing about pilot imposter is that as you try on all these different genres and tones and moods, we don't know if they are all quote unquote you, or especially because you're responding to Pessoa and different costumes, if there are different U's or if there's a capital Y U, if there's a stable. Isn't that the point? Yeah, that's that is. Like, like, that's all the whole point I'm trying to make them, the, you know, I've said sometimes that the book is kind of about identity politics and how, you know, somehow the idea of identity has gotten whittled down and, you know, boiled down to this, you know, sort of characteristics that are on the surface, right? Um, culture and and language and um, skin color and all of that kind of stuff. When, you know, the experience of being a human being is, is not about those things ultimately, right? It's about experiencing, you know, from the interior of one's being, whatever that is, um, something that, that out, that's outward. And I, and I feel like there was not enough, I feel like I hadn't heard people address that enough you know, in the last few years. And I understand that there's, you know, there are great political reasons for reducing the identity to, you know, all of those, all of those political characteristics, but that there's also an interior one that, well, what happens to that when you, when you do that? And there, I mean, there are so many people writing so wonderfully about the other thing that was like, well, you know, there's room for me to do this. Yeah. Well, we'll staying with with imagination and, and privilege, and maybe moving a little bit towards the other thing in relationship to your thing. Um, 
you engage directly with race in this book. And I, I think of the lines from Claudia Rankin, one of the lines from her work, blackness in the white imagination has nothing to do with black people. And her now famous line, because white men can't police their imagination, black men are dying. And you have pieces here that imagine their way into the heads of cops who've killed unarmed black Americans. And I also think of the piece in Pilot Imposter called Dear White Woman I Nearly Hit With My Car, where you say the assumptions we make based on our own perceptions and needs can be just as correct as other people's and yet still cause confusion, injury, and death. I guess I, I, I was interested in maybe staying with this staying with what plays out between the white cop in their imagination about the unarmed black person they're about to kill or, or their imagination after they've killed them. Um, and what plays out in your imagination when a white woman leaps across the street in front of your car, both seem to tell us more about the person imagining than the person being imagined. Um, even if the consequences are dire, uh, could you talk a little bit about those pieces in the in the in the book? Lifestyle issue came about because I was thinking, what could these people possibly be thinking? I mean, aside from the Pessoa piece that it uh, exists alongside. Oh, and that was another thing. It's a Hayish piece called "Obey the Law, Whether It's Wrong or You Are," which is, of course, you know, that's uh, extraordinarily provocative. Yes, to a black American to say that right? Because there are times when the law is unjust, and it's pretty obvious that you know when the, when the law is unjust. And so I'm sure that my decision to write about this um, came about because of all of that sort of connecting. There was actually one that I cut at the end, and, and it actually was important, um, just structurally, it was important that all of these different voices seem like different voices, right? And that's why it's not divided by numbers, but by one and another and another and another, because I wanted to make sure that the distinction was that, you know, it wasn't all my voice. It was all supposed to be different possibilities for somehow, you know, incorporating this, you know, horrible fact into someone's life, which I was just imagine. I was just trying to imagine like, what what is going on in the minds of people who may be guilty of you know taking a life in a situation like that and i'm not sure i have to go back there may be some things that are like dog whistles but i'm not sure that it's specifically about race you know i know that the the go-to assumption about that because of who excuse me not who i am but what i look like right is is probably there and i'm i'm certainly teasing that but i almost always want to make sure that what i'm writing about is power and the kinds of abuses of power that have nothing to do with people's culture and skin color and you know like every person on earth is capable of you know not i mean not able to i want to make sure that that's not everybody is able, not everybody has the power to do these things, to, you know, to do these kinds of injustice to one another, but everyone is capable of it. Mm. And that thing, that I think is a little bit getting lost in a lot of like conflicts 
uh, around the world, right? It's that, you know, these historical things have become essentialized. It's absolutely true that anybody, any group that gets like a teeny tiny little smidgen of power is going to try to abuse it in whatever way they can. Um, I mean, essentially the thesis is everyone sucks. <laughs> seriously, everyone is, is capable of both, you know, incredible achievement and, and connection and unity and horrific atrocity. Um, and that is one of the things that actually unites us. Well, I, I'm, I'm guessing that I already know the answer to this or that you've already in some oblique way already answered this. But just in case I'm being presumptuous, thinking about identity being reduced to surfaces to skin color by the imaginations of people and where those imaginations can cause real life injury and death. I guess I wanted you to chime in on what feels like the, the perpetually fraught question of people writing outside their subject position and the distrust that people have, especially when they're writing down a vector of, of power. Um, because this comes up more often than any thing on the show, really. Um, I often right. bring up Zadie Smith's defense of inhabiting other positions called fascinated to presume. And I also bring up Claudia Rankin's observation that almost always when white people write about race, they don't stay in a white body when they do it. They imagine themselves as another race, like as an mm -hmm. African um, or someone who's enslaved. Um, that when they write about race, they they leap into and inhabit a, a black position and that, that it reinforces whiteness as both something that transcends race and a default, a default position beyond it. But did you, ha did you have any thoughts on, on, the, <laughs> on this debate? Uh, <laughs> you don't, you don't have any thoughts about Wait, it. Wait, right? <laughs> I will get back to you with my dissertation later. Professor. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll like, um, can you simplify that question? When you're talking about not writing about race, but mm -hmm. wanting to write about power, that right. makes in the way that anybody, regardless of race, given the opportunity, could abuse it. My, I would take that, if I were to imagine further about you from that, around this question of writing beyond your position, that it, the, mm -hmm. I would guess that you would say that it's not a question of what position you're writing from, it's, it's how you're writing from it. And that it doesn't matter what the race of yeah. the person writing is, it's how they do the portrayal, whether it's causing harm or not. Yeah, but there are also considerations about um, the business of publishing and who gets published and why, right? I mean, it's, it's impossible not to look at the publishing industry and say like, this is in extraordinarily full of, of European descended um, pale people, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to avoid terms like white and black just because I think they, they contribute to the mess, like what Claudia Rankine was saying in, in the quote that you were mentioning. Um, so, I mean, there's a political aspect to it that um, really artists shouldn't have to worry about, but do. I mean, I think that ultimately an intelligent readership, which we have, can look at a, a work of art and say, you know, this was done in a spirit of connection and love and respect. 
um, as opposed to this is someone trying to cash in on something and they really have no connection to it. And they're, they're actually, you know, either punching down or they're, you know, they're committing some other sorts of acts of, of scorn, you know, that may be disguised as uh, charity mm-hmm. in, in some way. Um, but, I, but I mean, if you take away from novelists, for example, the ability to imagine other people's lives, there's nothing left. They just don't have anything. There's no other game. There's no other <laughs> trick in the wheelhouse. Right. Right. So like, I mean, that might explain to some degree, like the, the rise of auto fiction, like people are so afraid to write from another perspective or, you know, to take on a persona that is unlike the, the one that they project visually that they have to, you know, just mine the details of their own lives and maybe even sort of fabricate the details of their own lives in order to write something that doesn't feel compromised. But I mean, I think that some of what happens um, to people who, who get criticized for, for doing that is that they get a lot of money and attention for something that seems paternalistic mm-hmm. in whatever way, right? Yep. Um, people who are not getting a lot of attention and money for doing something that is not paternalistic t- tend not to get that kind of um, criticism. Um, there are, I mean, and there's some really fascinating examples of that, but I don't want to, I'm not going to call anybody out. All right. Well, you can do so and we'll just, we'll just uh, edit it out. Go ahead. Say, say all the names right now. Mm, I've, I've, I, no, <laughs> no, but I think, I think it's, I mean, it's absolutely necessary. If you, I mean, fiction is like a social, you know, art form. There's no way to write about just yourself. And, and even when you're just writing about yourself, you can't write about yourself in a way that's like airtight authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. Like writing is writing and life is life. And like, there's, there is an actual difference. And that feels bizarre to feel like I have to say something like that. Yeah. But, and I, I find it actually sort of amusing that sometimes people will say things that suggest that they're one and the same. Like, you know, somebody who, where, where you know, they have a friend who's an author who has uh, written a depiction of someone who's like based on, on that, their life in a book they'll point to the book and say, I'm in that book. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, you know, even sometimes when people are like, there are, there are black characters in that book. There aren't enough black characters. I mean, it's like, they're just words on a page. Nobody's really anything in a book except in your mind. But that's a little too esoteric, I think, an argument for a lot of people certainly in the middle of a heated debate, I would not bring that up. Yeah. Well, I, I was hoping we could hear two more pieces. Um, look and black rage. Look. Imagine, just for a moment, a world where everyone, absolutely everyone, was equal to everyone else. That was a trick. Everyone has always been equal. This is that world. 
but then how to forgive what they did, what we did, how indeed to undo the world. Black Rage. Auburn Calloway, a troubled black FedEx employee, had attended Stanford. On a cargo flight, he tried to kill the pilots with a hammer so that he could crash the plane, committing suicide in such a way that no one would know it had not been an accident and his family could collect on a $2.5 million life insurance policy. He succeeded in fracturing both pilots' skulls and dislocating one of their jaws, but they fought back and eventually subdued him. He had also brought a spear gun with him. He got two life sentences. I'm such a great person, thought Colin Ferguson. There must be only one thing holding me back. It must be white people. He murdered six and injured 19 on the Long Island Railroad. Racism had driven him insane, his lawyer said in his defense. Earlier, he had warned his enemies, black rage will get you. David A. Burke, an American of Jamaican heritage, had just been dismissed from Southwest Airlines. He boarded a plane along with his former boss and handed the guy a note written on a vomit bag. It's sort of ironical that we end up like this. He shot his former employer and entered the cockpit. A flight attendant who noticed the dying man burst in to inform the crew. We have a problem, she said. What is the problem? The captain asked. Burke killed the flight attendant and replied, I'm the problem. He murdered the pilots and pushed the plane into a 70 degree descent, accelerating just beyond the speed of sound. They found part of his thumb. They found the note on the bag. Black rage will get you. Been listening to James Hanahan read from Pilot Imposter. I want to spend a moment with my favorite collage of images, which occurs really early in the, in the book on a series of pages called On Scene Pessoa. And these these images to me are the most uncanny. Um, in the background is an image of the only Air Portugal flight that has ever crashed, um, and it's where I feel like we're invited to imagine Pessoa as the uh, pilot imposter who flew that plane. But in the foreground is a statue of a man who is impaled by many, many small planes as if they were arrows. Um, and, and like the Air Portugal image, you, you have to investigate to find out more about this. But, but in investigating it, it really blew my mind. For, for one, the statue is by a black sculptor, and it is called Tar Baby versus St. Sebastian, and it portrays a Tuskegee Airman as St. Sebastian, who was shot by arrows for protecting captured Christians he was supposed to imprison. But in Michael Richards' sculpture, the Airman, a black pilot from World War II, is being pierced by multiple airplanes. Uh, and this becomes very eerie when we, when we discover that this black sculptor who made a sculpture of a black man pierced by planes a sculpture where he cast his own body in plastic resin to create the human form that this sculptor died in 9-11 because his studio was in the World Trade Center. And there are many moments in the book like this, but none that gave me this sense of vertigo and shook me in, in quite this way, where this real coincidence of events seems so wild that it seems unreal. Um, 
I know you say this book operates mostly in the poetry sphere, even though Soft Skull has it marketed as fiction. Um, I saw I, it in essays the other day. Oh, did you? Well, I mean, it's hard to know how to, to in defense of Soft Skull, I'm not sure where you would put it. But I, but I feel like you're heightening, you're heightening, obviously, the tension between the fake and the real with things like this that are so improbable yet true. But I guess I wondered how much did you allow the reverse? How much did you slip in fictional things into real events, for instance? Well, actually, more, more what I did is, is create a kind of head cheese of, you know, fiction versus reality. Like, I'm, I usually will start with a series of things or a, a thing that is on some level real um, or accepted to, to be real because who really knows, right? Right. Um, and then, I mean, in the case of um, Air Disaster, the poem, poem piece, the piece you had me read earlier, um, a lot of the details in that piece are from, you know, a couple of different, um, a couple of different real disasters that have happened, but it's a composite of a lot of that. And some of it I kind of added to, or, you know, shaped in a particular way, um, just to kind of imagine like the worst possible outcomes for, you know, some of those, um, things, but I, you know, the thing that I think is kind of interesting about, well, not kind of, the thing that's really fascinating about the, the Michael Richards piece is that, I mean, is it just a fantastic coincidence or, you know, is there some connection to, you know, some greater reality that he was tapped into? And do you know what I mean? Like, it's, the, it's not the kind of thing you can ever definitively say, even though in retrospect, it looks as if it was some sort of rupture in reality that allowed him to like kind of predict what might happen to him. I mean, it, but it's very easy to make those kinds of determinations after the fact. Right. Right. But it does feel mystical or magical or, or, right. or, or foreshadowed or somehow. There's a piece later in the book that's, that sort of, it's about somebody that I did know who was in an airport air disaster um, and somebody else I knew who was, and they were both college friends. Um, somebody else I knew who became a well-known artist who makes these pieces that look like sort of, they, they some of them I should say were redolent of um, the reconstructions of uh, airplanes that you sometimes see. And in fact, there's a, there's a spread where the, the two, like one of her pieces um, is juxtaposed with with the reconstruction of a of a disaster. I think it actually might be the the actual one. And and you know just the feeling that while moving through life, you tend to interpret backwards because things that happen seem to mean something after something other than that you know so things uh, it's really difficult to explain but i mean you know you know what i'm talking about it's like it's much easier in retrospect to try to come up with an explanation for things than it is to to try to 
um, explain their meaning in real time mm-hmm. or as they're happening. And so, I mean, that's one, I think that's one reason people are fascinated with, with the Michael Richards piece and that one in particular. Um, but I didn't know that it was really, his intention was to, to be writing about, or excuse me, was, was to be making work about the Tuskegee Airmen. That puts a little bit of an, a spin on the whole thing, right? It, like yeah. it doesn't seem like it's about like his own self annihilation. He might have just been using his body because that was the, you know, that was the the material that he had. Right. He wasn't trying to say like I think this might happen to me, but something totally different. Yeah. No. I I I imagine that as a problem as one of the more probable explanations. Yeah, but I mean, there are lots of uh, ways in which the book touches on that. Like, you know, my husband and I are from the same city and we lived in that same city for, you know, various years. And it's it's always been an, it's been an endless sort of mental game for me to think about the fact that we probably crossed paths at some point long before we met and fell in love, right? Yeah. Um, but there's no way to go back and figure that out. Um, technology has not evolved to that point. I guess that's, I th- I, although I don't know, you might be able to do it now if you started, you know, uh, 10 years ago and looked at like where people had been. All the Google surveillance cameras yeah. and everything. Well, the, the nerd in me really loved learning about all the weirdnesses of that are Pessoa. I didn't know, for instance, that Jose Saramago wrote a book that starred one of Pessoa's heteronyms. So Ricardo Hayes, who was living in exile in, in Brazil after a failed royalist uh, coup, uh, comes back to Portugal to attend Pessoa's funeral in Saramago's book. Or there's this amazing description by another heteronym, Alvaro de Campos, is describing when Ricardo Hayes first encounters Kairu, he goes to a reading of Kairu's and that's what where he, he first discovers for himself that he wants to be a poet. And this is the way Alvaro de Campos describes the encounter of the so this is a heteronym describing the the first encounter of, of two of the other heteronyms where he says some physiologists claim it is possible to change sex. I don't know if it's true because I don't know if anything is true. But I do know that Ricardo Hayes stopped being a woman and became a man, or stopped being a man and became a woman, as you like, on the day he met Kairu. I, I, I'm, very, I'm very enamored by that quote. Um, in, in a weird way... The question if, of, of Pessoa's queerness comes up every yes, so often. It does. Um, and yet another unanswerable. Yes. It does seem sometimes that when there's a blackout of information that, you know, you can just leap to the conclusion, but maybe not so much in his case. He's just, you know, there may be some kind of identity that, you know, that he had that he was not, that, for which there was no language at the time or for which he had no language. Yeah. But in a, but in a weird way, it feels like he he created his own sort of like Dungeons and Dragons of poetry in the world, um, and and some of the poetry I really love, even when I don't agree with the f- philosophical assertions or don't even think about whether they're true or not. As I like sort of reading them like koans, 
And sometimes they produce these startlingly interesting moments, I think because he's assuming these really absurd positions philosophically and otherwise. Welcome to the club. Yeah, but that's what I wanted to ask you about is exactly this. Um, not, not just or even mainly about, you know, how, what to do with quote unquote problematic artists. Uh, but, but you, you've said that you wrote this book to undo Pessoa's work in certain respects, but also to rescue from it what still feels relevant in others. And I'm curious if you were ever transported by the beauty or, or wit or invention, or whether it was easier to undo him because you just simply weren't. Because I'm thinking of like, for instance, when you were on the Yato podcast very early on in the pandemic, and you mentioned to your fellow guests that some people were looking really hot wearing masks to you. And, uh, and so I wonder, so my question would be, does Pessoa ever seem really hot in one of his masks? <laughs> I suppose that I saw his work as an opportunity to explore. And, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks I have to agree with everything that a, a writer that I like on some level uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Yukio Mishima, actually. Mm -hmm. and I, But not his politics. I mean, who's a fan of Mishima's politics at this point? Only right. Mishima. Right. <laughs> like, I'm not about to, you know, commit seppuku over anything he does. But I like, I sort of like grappling with the, with the ideas. And similarly, Pessoa just pushed a lot of different buttons. And like, also, you know, provided a lot of, you know, pleasure and, you know, teeth grinding and, you know, just like there were a lot of different reactions I had to it and it wasn't boring and I wasn't bored. So I was like, let's try this. Right. I mean, that's like sort of my area of engagement is like less to judge an artist, especially somebody who's dead, you know, long dead like this and who was deliberately trying to screw with people's ability to nail down you know, his politics. I don't think it was really even possible um, other than to seize on various quotes as, as proof. I didn't think it was as interesting or, or even possible to sort of, to try to nail him down and like, you know, accuse him of whatever, especially when half of the, the heteronyms, more than half of the heteronyms are like espousing views that he doesn't particularly hold himself yeah. and who is himself. He claims not to exist. So why not just, you know, why not just, uh, you know, um, respond to the work as the work and, you know, ultimately it, it's very, you know, it's very like run and bar to me, isn't it? I mean, I, I was, <laughs> I've never, I've never left undergrad. <laughs> um, this sort of deconstructionist idea of like you know removing the author from the text yes you know lit 101 well i mean he he wrote poetry fiction politics horoscopes drama philosophy linguistic theory a treatise on boxing an essay on exhibitionism and he actively published things throughout his life both under his own name and under his heteronyms i even discovered that he published an interview that he did with a fabricated Italian anti-fascist that prompted the Italian embassy to complain that the person didn't exist. And then he responded with a forged letter from the invented person. But he did publish one book of poetry in his life, 
under his own name, a book that was nationalistic and called for sort of a return to the glory of Portugal's quote-unquote age of discovery by celebrating its various famous explorers. One that to his dismay, even though he had supported the dictator prior to being the dictator, was embraced by the dictatorship. And it's here where I feel like you're most unsparing to Pessoa himself. And it's also him writing as Pessoa. And it prompted me to go down a different rabbit hole to discover more things about Portugal, like like what you mentioned about Lisbon being 3,000 years old. It's a lot of people call it the oldest nation state in Europe because it has remained with the relatively same borders as a kingdom and then as a republic for the longest time, pretty much the same borders for 800 years. And it has the longest lived empire of 600 years, one that extended to over 50 countries, 53 countries at the time of its height. Um, And it was the first European nation involved in the transatlantic slave trade, which returns us to your, your flight from Lisbon to Cape Verde, which is, as you mentioned, one of the historic routes. Um, But I also encountered a scholarly work called whitewash nationhood empire and the formation of Portuguese racial identity that started out with the notion that the self is always constructed in relationship to the other and that the other for the Portuguese was the Moors and that they define themselves as both white and Christian over and against the Moors whose land they had to take to establish the Portugal's modern borders. And Manuela Morau says in this article, quote, the profound effect of the discoveries in the formation of Portuguese national identity cannot be overstated because they happened so early in the nation's existence and because they came to an end within a century and a half, they created a huge enduring gap between the country's mythology as a, quote, ancient glorious nation and its, quote, present diminished reality. Living in the past became the defense mechanism developed by the nation to deal with the psychic trauma by having lived for centuries as, quote, the people who discovered and baptized the earth from Cape Verde to India, from the Strait of Magellan to the Philippines, the Portuguese forestalled having to confront significant cultural and historical traumas. Besides shielding the nation's psyche from trauma by allowing it to remain in denial, this obsession with the past also suggests that the nation arrested the development of its identity at the moment of the discoveries. And this seems to be like Pessoa's gesture to try to reclaim the glory of Portugal by somehow uh, re-evoking a romantic notion of these discoverers. And this is my long prelude to, to asking you to to read some of these pieces in response to these poems that are written in Pessoa's own name. So I, I picked out a little brief triptych um, that I would love to hear. Uh, Ten Days of Repentance, uh, Blue Sky Tulum, and Abyss. Ten Days of Repentance. So what if, after all this, I came to my studio and just wept? If I sat alone and cried for everything that has passed and everything that has not, for those who should have survived 
and those who should not have. For the deaths of those I knew and those I did not, for those I hurt and those who hurt me, for children wrenched away from parents, for unarmed strangers shot dead, for the extinctions, the die-offs, for the fear of how much worse it could get, might get, already is, for the God that people love to pretend presides over all that goes wrong, who in fact blesses the holy mess, who must have a stronger stomach for violence and mayhem than any of us, for our stupidity in trusting this absent God to do anything other than enjoy our suffering, which is, after all, his job security. Let solitary private weeping be my art practice. Let no one commodify it. Let no one see it. Let no one know of it. Please, creatures of the future, if you have language, please know that I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Blue Sky Tulum. In Tulum, some resorts have hired guys to shovel up the seaweed, pile it into wheelbarrows, and move it away from the white sand beaches. Something has caused a massive bloom this year. No one can definitively blame climate change, but everyone whispers its name. Any observant person can see the futility of the chore. Kilometers long stretches carpeted with red-brown muck, the sea a soupy maroon, and there, at one end, perhaps in a particularly overwhelmed cove, close to an expensive-looking huddle of bungalows, three humble figures shuffle quixotically, before them a task attend to siphoning the air out of the sky. On the positive side, they have a kind of job security, but by the same token, so did Sisyphus. Though it smells briny, the seaweed makes good fertilizer and brings gnats for hungry seabirds. Tourists don't avoid the beaches, but only a few dive in, usually in less boggy spots, or at the hotel that has somehow cleared the kelpie scourge away by some likely pricey miracle. Inland lie cenotes, sinkholes filled with clear water, providing a lush alternative, a dangerous paradise of denial. But really, what other type of paradise is there? Abyss. Yet we rise from the darkness like whales coming to the surface for breath, and then sink immediately, relative to all time, back into the depths, the obscurity far beneath, our one breath the only breath. For who knows what we were before, and no one knows what we will be afterward what impression we may leave behind in the world of oxygen. Certainly nothing that one could consider us and our passionate struggles to be heard for justice, for air. What will they mean without the body, without us, when we plunge again into eternity, whereas the lives of the stars, not even the famous ones, just the average ones, go on for many more millennia. Boringly, maybe, but gloriously, affording so much time to explore and consider, even to see how the politics turn out, to understand things that, for us, begin and end insoluble. I'm listening to James Hanahan read from Pilot Imposter. So be- before we end, or as an ending, 
I, I wanted to mention Pessoa's revenge on you as you were part of uh, the weirdest thing that was looked at in the New York Times in an article called Why on Earth is Someone Stealing Unpublished <laughs> Book Manuscripts, where you fell vic- victim, among many other others, to a phishing scam. Where someone I who- actually didn't fall victim to the scam. Oh, you didn't? No, the way they wrote the article, it, it sounds like I did. It did a very clever job of like circumventing and using like language to suggest that I'd actually fallen for it. But what happened was um, I got an email on a, uh, an email address that I use specifically for like random people from the internet to, to interface with me. Um, and I, I got an email on that email uh, on that email address uh, from somebody who said they were my editor. This was right after the, the, uh, the announcement had been made of the sale of the book. Um, and I was like, I instantly, I was like, why the heck would he contact me on that email address? And so I went to my other, uh, my normal account, the one I normally interact with him on. And I asked him like, what were you, why, why were you contacting me there? When we have like all these email chains and this other thing. And he, he called me and said, that wasn't me. Yeah. Well, that's so but interesting. I do know other people who have fallen for it. Yeah, but. both big people and and lesser known people. That's part of the mystery. It seems is that this person had so much insider knowledge, or has so much insider knowledge that he's able to fabricate conversations to grant himself credibility, and then ultimately acquire these unpublished manuscripts. But nobody knows to, he, what, end. to what end because he's never published them or sold them. Um, I think it's a scout. I mean, most people are saying that it's probably somebody who's a scout. Beforehand knowledge of like what's coming out is like currency for them. Yeah. And they will sometimes use whatever means they can to get a look at things that are not out yet. That's the only person, the only type of person I can imagine, you know, for, for whom they have like some intrinsic value, unless it's just some, you know, MFA burnout who's like wants to has a point to prove or something but also knows all these names like the names of the editors and the publishers and the timing of everything it's very mysterious i'm glad that wasn't pessoa's contemporary revenge against you but tell us as we depart what you have a novel coming out soon that as soon as you get off this call with me you will be doing the the edit final edits for um Tell us about tell us about what we're we, we have in store for us. Uh, the book, <laughs> the book is called "Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta," um, and it's uh, the story. I mean, we're just trying to just tell me to use the word trans, but I I feel like this is a person who is gender nonconforming, living as a woman, who is coming back from an upstate New York prison after twenty one ish years. Um, in the system. It's the, it's the story of uh, Carlotta Mercedes, who went into prison as a male presenting person and um, just became, into, came into herself while in prison and also, you know, being traumatized and abused in a variety of ways by the system and is coming back to Brooklyn. And most of the the book takes place on the day she gets back. Mm. Um, but I realized at a certain point that 
writing about somebody coming back from upstate New York is like rewriting the Odyssey because of the central military tract um, in upstate New York. I don't know how much you know about upstate New York, but there are a lot of names, a lot of the names of the towns and the municipalities up in upstate New York are uh, references to classical literature. And it was because this, there was this one guy in the office that was responsible for naming things after the Revolutionary War when they were dividing up all the land who was really into classical literature. And so he's like, okay, Troy, okay, Ithaca, all right, uh, you know, Romulus, um, you know, Hector, uh, there's a Homer, there's a, I mean, there's just a lot. Um, and so the book also echoes both that book and Ulysses because I thought it would be just lame to, <laughs> to, to <laughs> for it to only refer to the Odyssey because everyone on earth has done that. And then at the same time, my husband who's, who's of Irish descent and I went to Ireland for the first time and I had never read Ulysses. And I usually, as I did with the Pessoa book, I bought, I brought a representative work of literature from the country I was traveling to. And it turned out to be that one. And then I was like, oh, I could just turn this whole thing into something really difficult to do. <laughs> and you did. Yeah, it seems like I did. Well, thank you, James Hanaham or James Hanahams, or whoever you are. Thank you for being on on uh, Between the Covers today. Well, thank you, Dave. We've been talking today to James Hanaham, the author of Pilot Imposter. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of James Hanahan's work can be found at jameshanahan.com. If you're hungry for more Pessoa after this episode, last month's guest, Rabi Alamadine, talks about and reads Pessoa for the bonus audio archive. This joins bonus audio from Nikki Finney, Jory Graham, Natalie Diaz, Alice Oswald, Rosemary Waldrop, Ted Chang, Ross Gay, Laylee Long Soldier, Arthur Z, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, a Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.